You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning, Village Church. My name is Faye. It is a joy to be with you all and to worship Jesus together. Our focal passage is found in the book of John, chapter 11, 45 through 57, if you want to follow along on the screens or in your Bible. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might, not, so they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. You can all have a seat and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Thanks, Faye. Hey, uh, good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, Would you pray with me? And then we'll, man, we'll open the book and we'll we'll sit under the word and we'll we'll see what happens. God, thanks for for bearing our burden. If we were honest, we would say before you and before one another that we can't handle this life. And it seems so heavy and so difficult to engage. Uh, with you sometimes and with one another and with the world around us. And so today, would you just let us know that you are here to bear our burden? God, would, would you just let us know that you invite us in to cast our cares on you because you care for us? Would you let us know that, that you have given us uh, a way to live and you've, you've not only demonstrated that through Jesus, but you've redeemed us through Jesus and you've, you've demonstrated what it looks like to, to be obedient, to, to follow you by giving us this book that we get to spend our life discovering together. God, we need you today and you know that I want to explain with a thousand words, every word that I'm going to say in the next 40 minutes, and I can't do that. So would you let us hear your word? Would you let us be drawn by your spirit? Uh, would you let us hear um, you and not me? And um, God, we, we need you, and we need your grace 
always and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Our are these summarized statements of kind of like alignment and, and belief and doctrine and faith that the church has used since the beginning, all right? And so some of the famous, the, the more famous ones that you may have heard, like the Nicene Creed, if you ever watch Jeopardy, they probably ask a question about that, and the answer is probably Nicene, all right? The Nicene Creed, a Chalcedonian Creed, like, okay, I'm, like I'm, uh, I'm drifting off a little bit. The Athanasian Creed, like, okay, I've lost you. But the, the oldest and the most formative is probably the Apostles' Creed. It was written in uh, late second century, 180s or something like that. Creeds are these historical, clarifying, and, and while they're not scripture, they do serve the church by kind of warding off heresy and, and false teaching, and they, they bring truth to practice through the agreement of God's people, and they, they shouldn't be discarded. One commonly used English version of the Apostles' Creed, it goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We'll come back to that. Was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic or Christian, universal, not under the Pope, but all that is. Uh, church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and in life everlasting. Amen. And, and one D.A. Carson, he says, that very ably summarizes the gospel itself in just a few sentences. But there's this unique, kind of like almost obscure line that I want to kind of hit on. It, it says this, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that's, that's weird because, well, like what's so significant about Pontius Pilate that he would make the creed? Because there are lots of kings and rulers from the beginning, Jesus' birth, Herod was out to kill him. So there are lots of opposition to him. It's just weird that this, that, that kind of made it in there. And, and there are so many op opposers to Jesus. Why does Pilate make it? Some historians say it was because he, he passed judgment on Jesus. He said things like this, I find no fault in him at all. And behold the man. That's what he said of Jesus. Behold the man of Jesus. Now, if you don't know anything about, about Pilate, at the end of the, the Gospels, at the end of the life of Jesus, he's accused by the Jews and he's brought before the Roman governor and ruler. And, and this, is, this is Pilate. And basically, Pilate kind of takes a pass on it. And he says, like, I don't see anything wrong. Like, you sure he's the one that you want to kill? And they're like, kill him. And he's like, okay. Like, all right. And so that, that's kind of what uh, Pilate's role is. And so uh, the idea is that in spite of himself, Pilate declared the truth of God in his judgment of Christ. He actually said some things that were true. Like, I, I find no fault in him, and we find that there was no fault in him at all. And so, uh, then it goes on, and, and God brings his word to pass, even through unwilling spokesmen. And this is what I want us to hear, because this is kind of the bedrock of what we're going to talk about for the next uh, 120 minutes. In the end, I want to try to speak like 1.5 speed, so just lock in, right? Everyone else will sound like they're moving in slow motion uh, after this. Uh, in the end, however, Pilate was a pragmatist. Now, some of you know what that is, and some of you don't, and I, I want to do, uh, I, I want to tease that out. Here's what it is. He let Jesus be crucified to avoid conflict. He refused to ask what's right, what is the right thing to do. 
And, and instead he asked, what is the convenient thing to do? He was a pragmatist. He refused to ask what's right. Instead, he asked what's convenient. I'm going to talk negatively about pragmatism for the next 40 minutes. And so I, I just want you to know that there are times when pragmatism is okay and when you, you, you do have to look at results or whatever. But, but I'm talking about building a life that's merely based on does it work? That's what pragmatism says. In, in faithfulness or maybe conviction, it says, is it right? And if it's right, then what does that mean? So hopefully you see the difference. Pragmatism focuses on, on what uh, produces desired results, not on the means to achieve those desired results. Pragmatism, uh, it says, results determine practice. What is the end? Well, let's do whatever we have to to get to the end. Uh, start at the end and we work backwards. But conviction, it establishes truth pillars to determine what acceptable results could be. It's a way that we live. It's not just aiming at, at the end. So we start with the premise of good, and then we follow those results to their ends. As a preface, I love efficiency, and I hate, like, futility. I hate doing things just to do them. And I ask the question as much as the next person, like, why are we here? What are we doing? That was a waste of time. Like, I say all those things, and so I'm not against that stuff. I am against that in the way that we build our worldview, our worldview as, as followers of Jesus. And so that's what I'm getting at. The, the question that we have to ask is a famous one, and it can be applied in a, in a million scenarios. Do the ends justify the means? Do the ends justify the means? Is, is what we're getting at the, at the end, are, are they justified by how it is that we're, we're getting there, right? And, and that can be applied in everything from a plot to kill Jesus, which is what we see here, to, to speeding to get to work on time, right? You get to say, okay, like, do the ends justify the means? I'll get to work on time. I, I could die on the way there. I could get pulled over and have to pay a fine. I, and so do the ends justify the means? And, and certainly not only in plots to kill Jesus or speeding to get to work, but, but we get to consider this in much weightier issues of, of the heart and of life and of culture. Let me throw some lines out to you. Like this is my proposal, all right? And, and we'll get to the text in a minute, I promise. But, but the results aren't the greatest win. That, that's what I'm telling you. Winning at any cost isn't winning, right? Uh, having obedient children who hate Jesus and the church and you and everybody else, that's, that's not the win. So if you said, my children will obey, that's, that's the result, that's it. But in the effort to get there, you, you undo a lot of other things, that's, that's not the win. Doing right for the wrong reasons isn't a primary win. Growing a church that isn't rooted in sound doctrine or doesn't know truth or doesn't live consistently with what it believes or, or that isn't humble or doesn't love or isn't committed to biblical faithfulness, that's not a win. Being a realtor of the year and selling homes through lies, that's not a life goal. You understand what I'm saying? Pure pragmatism defines success by results, but that's not our pursuit as citizens in the kingdom of God. Pragmatism is a helpful tool when you're gardening. And your only goal is to have, you know, healthy vegetables. Like do, like do what works, no matter what the bloggers say, right? <laughs> do, do whatever. But, but it's a real danger when, when we consider what it looks like to be the church, to follow Jesus faithfully, or when, when building the church. See, I get emails all the time just this week. I get marketing emails that say stuff like this, like, 
how to make your next sermon series the best you've ever preached, guaranteed. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> it's guaranteed. And, and, and for real, as a, you know, the, the world out there marketing the church, this is very common. Leadership principles and like how to increase giving 33% this week. <laughs> like who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't, like, who is leading the church and like, I wouldn't want the giving to increase to the church by 33% this week? How to grow the church to, to be uh, a thousand in eight short weeks? <laughs> and what I do to that is I never click on those emails. Because they're pragmatists. Like, we, we get to live this thing out in such a way. And look, I'm not opposed. I'm not saying that, that we get to do things to stop church growth or that we don't get to call people to faithful generosity and obedience and all those things. It's not that at all. It's just like, gosh, that's not, no. Like, I, I don't build my life that way. And here's kind of the main, the main idea. When, when we live by what works, there's danger in redefining the target from what's good, right, and best. Right? And I know. I hear you. Some of you are like, yeah, but what works is is what's good, right, and best. And I would say, that, that might be true. But, but stick around. That's what I would say. So there are three ways that, again, mere pragmatism misses the mission, and we see it in this text. The first one is this. Pragmatism acknowledges the truth, but chooses lies. So we're starting in verse 45. I want to read this. Uh, we preached the, the passage just before this on Easter, and so I didn't want to preach it again. That was like two months ago. And so... Uh, what's happening is Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. He was hanging out with Mary and, and Martha. And there were lots of Jews around. And, and some of them seemed to be sympathetic. And, and they kind of saw what was happening. So Jesus just raised a guy from the dead. And everybody's like, hold on. The Jews are uh, the religious leaders. And they have some like cahoots with Roman uh, authorities. And they have some influence there. Uh, but they, they're not jiving with, with Jesus so much, right? And so they've been fighting with him. That's basically what we've been looking at for uh, 11 chapters is them fighting with Jesus. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is, he, lay, he raised Lazarus, believed in him. So many believed. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is, uh, the Sanhedrin, these 70 ruling officials or whatever. And, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So like in short, the Jews wanted to prevent Jesus from causing a stir among the people lest they lose their positions of power. That's what's happening they feared losing their kind of semi-autonomous status by the Romans. In, in some ancient cultures, uh, well, even God's people, they would get like overtaken and they could continue to worship. And sometimes they would like, no, you can't. You must look like us, crash their, the temples and all the things. Rome didn't do that yet, although they will. Um, and so they're, they're kind of like living in this. It would be like us in America saying like, gosh, like I wish the church wouldn't fight about that. Because, like, we could lose our, our tax breaks and we could no longer be considered a nonprofit and then we'd have to pay taxes like everyone else. 
for real. Like there's some like, oh, well, like we're not enemies of the government, but maybe that. And so there's like some other stuff in that, but that's kind of what, what they're saying. There's some benefit in having a good name among Rome or the United States or whatever. So, so they're saying if this guy is causing problems, then, then they're going to punish all of us. So we have to choose our battles. The Jews live as Jews under Roman rule, right? Uh, secular rule. God's people did have a theocracy at some point. A theocracy is a, a God government. And so at some point, they, they had that. And, and we read about it in the Old Testament. God like, called Abraham, and, and ultimately that showed up with Saul, and then they got the right guy, maybe David, and, and, and it was the, the kingdom of Israel, and God was their king, but they traded him in for a, a real king. That's, that's what we read about. So God was their king. He ruled them. But they like couldn't figure it out. And what, what Israel kept saying is, but, we, but God, we want a real king. And God's like, I'm your king. Me, the king of all kings. And they're like, yeah, but we want one that looks like that, the country over there. And he's like, okay, that's fine. I'll give you what you want. But this is important to know. That they're not living this way. And look, we're not either. And so there are some implications. Jesus came not to establish his kingdom on earth through earthly means. And that's why all these things is, is he the Messiah? Is he going to restore us back? Is he going to create a theocracy where, where God is the one? And, and there's this one guy who's ruling and reigning here on earth? Is that going to be? And when we say that, we're like, gosh, they missed it. That wasn't what Jesus was doing at all. And yet, we live for the same thing to happen. Or maybe we don't even know that this is a paradigm that we're living out of. So, so Jesus didn't come to do that, but, but he came to gather his citizens for the kingdom to come. And the invitation for the church here on earth, here and now, is to make visible that invisible kingdom. That's what, he, that's what he's invited us into, to make visible here on earth, in the in-between, not the beginning in the garden when God was ruling and reigning and everything was, was well for like a, two and a half chapters of scripture, and not at the end where he will rule and reign again in the new heavens and new earth, but the in-between, we get to make that invisible kingdom visible. That future kingdom where Jesus reigns and his people live under his perfect rule, that's what the church gets to do as we interact with one another here and now. Now, how does that play out? Gosh, it gets, it gets messy. That's why it feels tense. It, it is tense. It's a difficult thing. But we must always look under the surface when we are making, uh, when we say things, when we, have, when, when we are responding to things, just like these, these Jews are doing. They're saying, gosh, um, if people believe in him, then Rome will take away what's good for us. So we have to look at why are we thinking that? We have to look at, at our motives. We have to know this, that, that actions flow from the heart. Our actions, our words, like the... the the line of scripture, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what? It speaks. And what we always say is, that's not what I meant. That's not who I am. And what the Bible says is, no, that is exactly who you are. You just, you just happen to put your guard down and let it out. So time and time again, God elevates his people to live consistently in belief, in word, in word, in deed. And, and at the same time, we are all hypocrites. Like, in fact, you have to acknowledge that you're a hypocrite to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to say, there is a way that I want to live, and I'm not living that way. So when, when the world accuses you of that, you get to say, gosh, and I hate that. 
Like, that's not what I want to do. Like, we get to acknowledge that, that we live in a way that we don't desire to live as we try to be obedient and follow Jesus. But at the same time, God never lets us sit in that. That's not the goal. We don't just say, well, I am who I am. No, we let him conform us and, and challenge us not to be inconsistent. So what I'm talking about is, is the idea of conviction. And some people have convictions like, you know those people. And some people just have none, and they say, yeah. They say like this, I don't care where we eat. No conviction, none at all. <laughs> One time, uh, me and Kim and Justin and Mary and some other friends, uh, we sat in a blockbuster for three hours in a snowstorm. And I remember, I, I remember sitting in blockbuster, they like rented movies, you can look it up. <laughs> but I remember, I remember sitting in the aisle I remember just like laying down, like, dude, somebody make a decision. We left, no movie, <laughs> right? And it wasn't like, well, let's just go stream something. You couldn't stream anything, right? <laughs> Conviction. So there's this, there's this Friends episode, and there's this guy named Ross, and he's like a nerdy type, and he is like a dinosaur doctor or whatever. He doesn't fix them, but he studies them. <laughs> Great singer-songwriter, right? <clears throat> and um, there's this... Scene after scene, uh, the issue is that, that Ross is like saying evolution is like fact, and Phoebe's like, no, it's not. And, and so like scene after scene, Ross is trying to convince her, and she rejects his science, right? Um, and so there's all kinds of stuff, and there's some bad science in there, and so don't go there to friends for your scientific inquiry. But scene after scene, he's trying to convince her, she rejects him. And, and so at one point she says this, Ross, what is your obsession with this? Maybe it's time that you put Ross under the microscope. Right? And he comes in with a briefcase, and in that briefcase, we never see what's in there because he's saying that there's like evidence of evolution, and I know you can't put that in a briefcase, right? And so this is not a, a commentary on the Earth's origin either. So, <laughs> so I'll say things to make you angry. I just haven't said them yet, okay? So, uh, so this is what Phoebe says. She says, okay, could you open your mind this much? Wasn't there a time when the brightest minds in the world believed the earth was flat? And up until 50 years ago, some would say the brightest minds today believe that, right? And some would say some believe that, right? And, and up until 50 years ago, you all thought the atom was the smallest thing until you smashed it open and all this crap came out. Her words, not mine. Now, are you telling me that, that you are so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit that there's a teeny, tiny possibility that you could be wrong about this? And Rachel and Monica look on, and Ross sits there, and he, like, through his teeth, reluctantly, he says, slowly, but I'm going to speed it up, there might be a teeny, tiny possibility. And she says, I can't believe you caved. It's the whole show. It's what's been happening. You just abandoned your whole belief system. I mean, before I didn't agree with you, but at least I respected you. Now, how are you going to go to work tomorrow? How are you going to face the other science guys? How are you going to face yourself? Ugh. He closes the briefcase and he walks away. <laughs> Conviction's a thing. That's my point. Right? And, and the people of God must be people of conviction. Now, if you think that that means being rude and ruthless and just ready to fight, then you need to have some other convictions to help support those. Like, we don't just get to pick and choose about the things that we're going to be staunch and bold about. 
So, so we get to have convictions, and, and here's the thing. The, the pillars of that conviction for those who are in Christ, they're not built on conservatism. Conservatism says that things should be as they have been. That's what it says. And you can say, well, there's lots of stuff in there, but that, that's the, the heartbeat of it, that things should be as they were, as they have been. And so here's the thing. I know. You, you're saying, oh, another pastor who br- brings politics into the pulpit. Like, could we just not? And here's what I want to tell you. We're reading a text that deals with how to follow Jesus in light of Rome. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. You've already sang politics, Right? You already sing about it. But, but what I don't want you to hear me speak on is partisan politics. Because in just a minute, I'll pick a fight with the other side. Like, that is not my allegiance. That's not our allegiance. We don't sit in one camp or the other. We don't, we don't get to, that's my point. So, so our pillars of conviction are not built on conservatism, which says things should be as they have been. And they're not built on liberal, liberalism, which says that, that, that they should be uh, as the ever-changing world around us says that they should be. Like, we don't get to do that either. Instead, our pillars of conviction get to be on the unchanging God who gives us unchanging truth in an ever-changing context of time and people and place. That's, that's what we get to do. Is the kingdom of God political? You better believe it is. He's the king, I tell you. So they acknowledge signs, literally God signs. And what they've been saying all along is like, he's doing things that only at best someone sent from God, maybe even God himself can do. He's, he's doing things that only someone sent from God can do. And they've been saying that all along the way. And some even believe he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Jews saw how he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And they saw his power over death. And some believed and others snitched. So they go and they tell on him. They believed he was sent from God. They believed he was doing the works of God if not God himself, but that acknowledgement, that truth came at a cost that was too great for them. They could not let the truth shape their lives, so they must suppress that truth because it would cost too much. Rome had let the Jews alone and allowed them to maintain some rights, so they decided to fear Rome over fearing God, and that led them to move the goalpost of godly living, and and at this point, they're choosing to please man over pleasing God. And that might happen in the government, and that might happen in the public of of, uh, what the masses say. That might happen in in lots of ways, but but there's an obedience shift for them. They're claiming to be representatives on on behalf of God. And in this moment, they decide that even if that's true, that's not what they're going to live out of. So there's an obedience shift from God to man, from truth to lies. And for those in Christ committed to following him, we must evaluate our own actions, which must flow from a motive that's founded on wisdom, principle, and conviction that God calls good. This is how we practice our faith. 
So this opportunity shows up in a thousand ways, and certainly uh, business, you know, it's spheres of life. In business, we can cut ethical corners for, for personal gain. We can do that. In, in politics, we could side with our party even when its conviction runs against Scripture. Or we can side with our guy or our, our woman even when they, uh, their convictions run against Scripture. There's this line I read a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> Someone tweeted, it says, I've seen many people leave their church because it doesn't match their political party. I've rarely seen anyone leave their political party because it doesn't match their church. What about being the church? How do these things show up when, when, it's, when it's faithfulness to live out the way of God against the backdrop of darkness? It's, it's failure to align belief with scriptural support, bold truth that's, that's void of compassion? That's not okay. And again, as in the way that we build the church, compromising biblical church mission or governance or holiness or accountability, conviction to, to gather a crowd or, or gain a platform or to rise to power or get a book deal, that's, that's not what we get to do. <clears throat> when we live by what, when we live merely by what works, there's danger in redefining the target from what's good, right, and best. The second thing that we see is is pragmatism protects self at the expense of others. I'll read just two verses, 49 and 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he said to them, you know nothing at all. Like, this is a pretty sharp, he's like, you, I won't use words, but like, he's saying like, you're, you, you know nothing at all. That's what he's saying. <laughs> you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you, and, and he's saying it's better for us, It's, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he's like, he's looking down the line a little bit and he's saying, well, what's best for us? Because that's what we're going to do. Pragmatism protects self at the expense of others. Better one man die than our nation suffer. It's like a tagline of like an 80s Bruce Willis movie or something. On the surface, we can see the reasoning, kill him, if we kill Jesus, uh, and then that buys the Jews some, some time or some freedom, some like good graces with, with Rome. But, but if he lives, then, then all these people are going to start believing in him. And it's going to get so out of control that, that all their lives are going to be transformed in such a way that Rome's going to come to us and we're all going to suffer. And so what we see here is, is the flipped switch is the tell that they are making pragmatic choices, not good choices. They're living out of, of fear what is convenient, what is safe, what is self-serving, what is in their best interest over what is right, what is good, what is best, what is God himself. There's this pretty much consistent theme that up until this point they would have agreed with, don't murder like, that's not a good thing, uh, right? And so up to this point, like, don't murder, and yet we're willing to kill someone made by God in the image of God so that we might benefit, so that we can live more safely, comfortably, and so that we can more freely serve God with the life that Rome lets us 
have. Fear is the emotion that's driving their pragmatic, convenient solution to the problem of losing power. That was their primary concern, was maintaining control, which Jesus was threatening by doing God's signs, which led to belief. Uh, I want to read a commentary. I think it will be on the screen. Uh, Just a slice of of commentary on this. It says this. A similar error is apparent when we begin to evaluate spiritual realities by how we will be affected. Their concern wasn't whether Jesus was right or good, but how his actions would affect them. That is, uh, they start with, what does this mean for us? Not what is good, right, and true. This is a dangerous path, but one we so easily travel. When our decisions are not based on clear biblical standards of holiness, but on how they will affect our own comfort and convenience, then we're committing the error of the Pharisees. Now look, I hope you can see some connections. The reason why we preach through books of the Bible are a couple reasons, but, but one is to protect me from just giving hot takes on whatever happens in the world around us every single week. The second thing is to protect you from me doing that. <laughs> when George Floyd lost his life and the world caught on fire, remember that? Like, all, just everything was wild. Nine months prior, I submitted a, uh, a preaching calendar to our elders and, and we were set to preach a sermon series called Micah, Justice for All. Right? World catches on fire. We preach that. Timely. It engages. It was difficult. Um, and so the, the beauty of this today is that certainly some of these things come to bear on the fire that is outside of those doors all around But what I want you to know is that the Holy Spirit can speak truth. He doesn't just have to be spontaneous, but he can can bring things to bear through his word in ways that like show up on a spreadsheet. And that's pretty cool, right? So so I'd planned to preach this text this week, 10 months ago, and here we are. So I I don't want you to think that I'm hijacking a text to speak to some cultural wave of emotion. I'm not. But we do get to look and we get to say, what what does this have to do with what's going on around us? Here's what it means. We observe the text and we figure out what it means for them and we connect with it. We connect it to other parts of Scripture. We connect it to our lives and then we figure out how to live it. That's, that's how we engage this. So when the church engages culture, a few things are true. One, we don't determine actions based upon results other than the result of God receiving the most glory. But we only know how that works by looking at what it looks like to follow him 
and be obedient to his commands for us. Rather, we let the results flow from biblical convictions. And that's true when we commit to a relationship. We get to, we get to do the same thing. It's scripture over cultural practice. And that's tough. If you're dating, that, I know that that's tough. We get to see what this says and we get to live in light of it, not what the world says. It's true when we put forth a work ethic and we work hard legitimately and we rest well legitimately. It's true when we balance our use of time. What do we do with our days, with our hours, with our moments? We get to look at what this book says, and it's true when the Supreme Court of the United States is involved. These things are still true. The, the muddiness of, of Christians engaging the world around us is, is that we are not a theocracy. It's more akin to, to the Jews or the Christians living in Rome. But we don't have to buy the lie. Hear this. I don't have time to say all the things. We don't have to buy the lie that we either celebrate the protected life of a not yet born child or we mourn the burden of a mom to be in a tough place. The lie is that you have to choose. You don't have to choose. That's not, that's not how we make decisions. That's the world putting an option before you and you saying, I have to, I, I, gosh, I don't know. Like, you don't have to do that. That's not the way we make decisions in this life. What if we didn't have to choose as the world does, but our hearts and our passions were inflamed to seek understanding, compassion, gospel-formed pillars of conviction, which shows up in what's loving and what's true? We don't have to define the win or begin that. That's not where we start. We don't begin with what ifs and what abouts. That's not where you begin to engage those conversations. They're too weighty for that. But rather we start with what is true and we build, out, we build that out to its ends. And, and implications must follow, but they don't lead. Application, it has to follow, but it, it can't lead in the way that you look at everything that is around you. You can't look and say, there's a statement, well, I have to respond to that. No, you look and you, you, back, you peel all of it away and you, you block out all the noise and you say, what is true? Who is God? What is a human? What is compassion? We don't, we don't build convictional buildings with pillars from political slogans or chants or hashtags. That's so cheap. You can let the world do that and let the world burn itself down. Can we not do that? Maybe those are paint colors on the building. Maybe they're the type of shingles. Maybe they're window treatments. But look, those things, if those are your pillars, they won't hold together when the wind blows. What is true about God? What is true about creation, about sin and its work in everything, its impact on 
on the way that we think and perceive in life, where it comes from, where it begins, where it ends, what is true about sex, about family. Start there and build out. We don't begin on how to engage social programs or daycare or education reform or penalties for assault or, or rape. But we, don't, but we don't start there. We must sit with and mourn with and cry with and empathize with and we, we have to put our money where our mouth is and our, and our time where our mouth is. But it means that Christians don't start with what works or what's convenient or what's comfortable or what's safe or, or not what's been done or not the application or the implication. But, but with sifting what's true of God, his truth, and his people, that's how we live a biblical worldview. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's really hard. The law of a, of a secular nation will always struggle to define good with, with godly nuance and wisdom because we're not shaped from the outside in but from the inside out. It's always going to struggle. It's always going to be difficult. Or maybe I'll say it this way. The law, it curbs evil, but it doesn't cure it. So if you feel like, gosh, Life is so hard and so tough, and I don't even know, and, and I hear that, and like, this is not our home. It's not our home. R.C. Sproul says, the Christian life is, is nothing if not challenging. It is not the fun life, nor the easy life, it is life. And man, I, I feel that with you at times like these. The last thing is, is pragmatism justifies spiritually while undercutting the true mission of God. When we read on it, it says that Caiaphas did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, not on purpose, but by accident, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to kill him, and, and Jesus kind of goes into deep hiding so based on their reasoning, they bypassed the mission of God. They bypassed the, the truth of God by, by citing some lame spiritual justification. Let, let Jesus die to save this nation, like if he only knew the words that he, were speaking, that he was speaking. Jesus must die for this nation, and not only, but to gather all of the children of God scattered abroad. So they plotted and they planned to kill him. At this point, it becomes inevitable. And as we're reading along with, with John's writing, it, it's just an inevitable reality. Like, the end was near, but, but so is the beginning. Caiaphas is doing the pilot. He's like, eh, let's just do what feels best today. He's being pragmatic, but God is, is being God, and he's doing what he does, and that's using what's meant for evil to redeem it for good. It's a pattern that we see through the, throughout the scriptures, and, and sometimes we get to see it come to fruition in this life. 
And sometimes we don't. Because God's ways are not our ways. But if there was one who had the opportunity to choose the ends and bypass the means, it was Jesus. He stood in a garden and he knew that, that all of eternity led to him dying to redeem this world from its sin. And he stood in a garden and he prayed and he, he began to sweat and he sweat blood drops out of his face. And he said, Father, take this cup from me. Right? What he's saying is, do the ends justify the means? If there's any other way, then let it be. And you know what? He drank the cup. And he died on the cross. And he died with the weight and the sin of all who would believe on his shoulders, having never sinned in his life. Because the ends did justify the means. If there was one who rejected lies to choose truth, it's Jesus. If there was one who did not protect himself at the expense of others, who rather protected others at the expense of himself, it was Jesus who gave away what he alone deserved and he took upon himself what we deserved. It's Jesus who, who leaned into the fray of selfish sinners who would just as soon kill him than to worship him. And he allowed death to come to him so that others might live. He was inconvenienced so others could live. He gave up comfort to give us eternal paradise. He had compassion on the broken and he carried our burden. He had selfless empathy and he gave up his home to make a place for strangers to live as siblings in the house of God. This is the painful reality that we must embrace. And it's also the beautiful reality that warms us to love Jesus and to love others in ways that cost us deeply. This is the power to, to not uh, go through life offended by everything and it's the power to allow us to endure difficulty that comes from friends and from circumstances and from authorities and from every other thing. In the kingdom of God, doing what works isn't the aim. The aim is to do what's right according to the scriptures and let God work his forever plans through his forever wisdom. His mission marches on because he isn't caught off guard. He's not caught off guard by the sin of the world outside and he's not caught off guard by the sin within our own heart even today. When we live by what works, there's danger in redefining the target from what's good, right, and best. What is living for what's good, right, and best? Well, it's following Jesus, letting the scripture determine our posture and our practice for his glory, in his wisdom, trusting that his way is our way for joy, for fullness of life, for love, for truth, and for others. The band can come on up. We get to respond today. I'll hang out in the back if you want to throw some punches, right? You can pray right where you are. You can stand up and sing with these, with, with the band. You can pray over there. You can pray at that red tree. Someone would love to pray with you. If you're in Christ, 
Man, I encourage you to wrestle with these things. That's why we put these reflect, repent, respond questions on the screen. It's so that we can wrestle with things that go beyond uh, 40 minutes of me rambling. We get to sift our own hearts. And, and what this meal is, it's an invitation for bread and, and drink, and, and it's a, a reminder and a declaration that, that Jesus laid down his body to give us life, and he spilled his blood to give us life. And so what we get to do is we get to be reconciled to him in repentance today. And gosh, if there's something, someone in this room that you have beef with or tension with or, or you're not reconciled in your heart, take care of that before you come and take this meal. This, this, what it, this is an opportunity for us to reflect. So would you pray with me and respond as you see fit? God, thanks for, for tough words, for truths that, that we just don't even, it's just tough. Would you undo the foolish work that, that I just did and would you just resound your love for broken people in broken places? Would you just let that ring true as we sing to you and about you? We need you today more than ever. In Jesus' name, amen.